welcome back to The Aryan Jew Show, episode 5. I think we have settled on a hashtag, and that is hashtag Aryan Jew Show with capital A, J, and S. I am your host and present listener to the ramblings of the Alexander Bard sessions as they continue. My name is Aaron Flam. 50% of what you will hear in the next hour is brilliant, and 50% is insane, but even when you don't agree, I guarantee that you will find it interesting. So, let's continue with the ramblings of Alexander Bard. Please enjoy. When I logged uh, the sessions we did uh, last uh, yesterday, on the computer yesterday, after you've left, I, uh, re- I, I wrote them in as the Alexander Bard sessions because I started listening to them. And then you were on for like three hours and I'm trying to get a word in. Oh, but, but you, no. But, but, you, but, you, but you somehow managed to, um, well, go through almost an entire philosophy. And you were so much into Taoism that I started thinking about Taoism. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. We're going to start with weakness and strength. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an interesting topic. Uh, yes, because I'd like to start uh, with, because I learned something from listening to us yesterday, that I should always ask you about definitions of words before you start. Yes. So what I thought was, I'd like you to define the word weakness first. Okay. Uh, well, weakness is the opposite of strength. So they're not a dialectical relationship with each other. So yes. um, you, you've got a force that's pushing ahead or something that has a strength and the territory that the, this force occupies then has a weakness. So it gives in to the strength. I would say when it comes to human beings, um, it starts with a child testing the parents because the child, the child obviously is from a position of weakness. The child is completely dependent on the grown-up world for its survival. So it's testing this strength of the parents. And of course, this, this, uh, you test your mother, you test your father, you test the grown-ups in general. And of course, the whole teenage rebellion is one huge test. And this makes sense. So it's, so you're testing to see if the strength that you're reliant on really is strong. So you can rely on it. And uh, of course, women, to a certain extent, also test men. Because yes. women are at the center, they're at what I call the inner circuit of society, meaning the men are basically the outer circuit, meaning the outer circuit is defending the community or the tribe against uh, outside threats, and therefore it also has to be tested. In a way, women as a collective act as a kind of censors, like they're worried, they easily also get paranoid, and sometimes for good reasons. Because men tend to be ignorant, whereas women react, you know, um, to to, to uh, what they perceive as being outside threats. So you need that kind of sensor for the community to to get realigned and focused on defending itself from outside threats. But men doesn't. We don't test women. No, no, no. Men are too stupid to test women. Right? <laughs> we just attracted to women, and then we try to win them over, and then we try to seduce them, and then we get some kind of points in our head heads if we do. So uh, that is basically the problem. There's a certain naivety involved with men in that sense, I would say. But um, the problem is that in contemporary society, we've then moved the child's legitimate test of the parent and the woman's legitimate test of the man onto a general uh, questioning of authority. So there's a certain romanticism involved with the idea that authority should always be questioned. Uh, And this is a major problem, uh, and it goes with the... uh, with a lack of uh, with a lack of substance behind contemporary capitalism, you know, you, you've always heard the customer is always right. Well, yes. Another version of that in politics is that the voter is always right. 
Yes. And then, Meaning that the voter has the right to do whatever they like and we just have to please the voters. And what that creates is, is a kind of questioning of authority, meaning we constantly question anything that's strong and we attack anything that's strong. And it thereby creates a vacuum because we don't replace what's strong with something else that's strong and can be uphold. So what is then strength? If weakness is giving in to strength, what yes. is strength then? Strength is, for example, the capacity to make a decision and stay true to that decision and follow through on it and, and make sure you have the resources to... to to make that decision and to accomplish what you set out to do. That is strength. Strength is leadership. It's, for example, in the group of people you take the leadership, you say that, okay, um, somebody has to make a decision. Uh, we need to stop talking about this and, and, you know, get to some action. And I take the lead on that and I take the responsibility for that. And then you show the capacity to follow through on your decision. That is strength. Um, strength is also resources meaning that you won't attack me because, you know, i got all the resources that I can beat you back easily. So that's a position of strength. And we have learned that strength is something negative. It's something we should attack. When, when in reality, when you, if, you, if you study, for example, Nietzsche, the idea of will to power is that power is in itself something positive. It, it has an enormous capacity to achieve something. I mean, we cannot build civilization itself unless we're powerful, unless we have strength. So the problem with contemporary society is that the constant nagging and bitching attacks against authority means that um, the mythology of the customer is always right, and the mythology of the voter is always right. Is that we've ended up with the mythology that the weak in society are allowed to constantly question and attack the strong without being required to then replace the strong with something else. And that ultimately leads to a vacuum of power. It's just it's like there's nothing powerful going on there. And we then arrive at a society with constant debates about absolutely everything. Has everybody been seen and heard in the room? Does everybody feel they have, you know, attention? And, and we end up with this sort of infantile climate of debate where actually making a decision and following it through that decision has become second rate or, 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 or not that important any longer. And that is, of course, the end of civilization. Civilization is about the determination to quickly gather information, come to a conclusion, make a decision and follow through on it, and stay true to that decision. It sounds a bit like, I, I remember reading Alex de Tocqueville, it was years ago, and he was talking about when he went around America, as a, you know, like the first sociologist or anthropologist, and he said he had noticed in the American democratic system that they raised people up just to cut them down. Like that was his observation of the American populace that you know the populace would raise someone up to a godlike uh, uh, place of honor and then they would cut them down mercilessly and he thought that this was a a sign of modernism something that he hadn't seen in a pre-modern world. I find that very very interesting because it it's a sign of the fact that mythology itself has taken over reality because in a drama. We love the idea that somebody rises to the top and then the question and then they fall. So this has to do with civilizations and the rise and fall of empires and the idea that if you are successful and you get to the top, you somehow have to become corrupt sooner or later and corruption will then kill you. 
That's not necessarily true. I mean, the thing is that if you're smart and clever, you get to the top. You also know that when you get to the top, you can easily become corrupt. You can become the very observant about your, your potential for corruption. That means that empires don't last equally long. There's no law of nature that says that at a certain point in time, when you're at power, you will be corrupt. There are people who can easily hold a powerful position the rest of their lives without ever going corrupt, just by being aware of it. But you need then to create systems where corruption is not an incentive. It's hard to become corrupt in the first place. And the Tocqueville's interesting idea was, of course, that a system which has three centers of power means that if one of the three systems becomes corrupt, the other two can react against it. So if one of them rises above the other two, the other two will then unify against the third one. And this is what you then look at. If you look through history, you look at power triads. And any paradigm will always have a power triad. It will first have a power that sits on the resources, which is one strength. For example, the nobility when mm -hmm. we had feudalism or the bourgeoisie during industrialism. They, they, they sit on the resources. And then you have a second power, which we call the symbolic power, which is the production of truth. And that's usually the priesthood or, you know, in contemporary side, that would be academia and science. Yeah. That, that would be truth production. That is, of course, another strength because you constantly produce truths on which others act. You might own patents. You, you might start your factories from the fact that you invented something. So the fact that you are truth-seeking in itself means you will sooner or later run into truth nobody's discovered before. And when you do that, you can exploit that truth and that can make you immensely powerful. So the symbolic power is incredibly powerful. But because you have the symbolic, and what, what the, we call the first power the real power, because you sit on the resources. And the other one you call the symbolic power, which is the truth production, the monopoly on truth. Nobody could question the Catholic Church during feudalism, for example. Nobody's allowed to question the imams in Islamic countries. And, and nobody's allowed really to question academia today because you, you're required to respond to academia with another academic text with relevant footnotes, etc., to prove that you're right. You cannot just feel that you want to be opposed to something in academia the way you can in the market. So you then have a symbolic power. Then you need the third power to balance the other two. And the funny thing is that the third power is the one we call the imaginary power. And that is the one we have to construct to balance out the other two. And it has very little power in itself. Its power really is only to balance the other two. And that's exactly why the imaginary power is always the power we think of when we hear the word power. Uh, so in feudalism, that would be the king, for example. And today it would be the politician. When you say power, you think Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. So you think of politicians. And, and the politician and the parliaments and, and law is essentially the imaginary power of society. And because you have three of them, in America, we did talk though, that would have been the Congress and the Supreme Court and the President. And they, they serve exactly these three poles. And because they're three, they're stable over time, and it becomes a system that can resist corruption better than any other system can. Would you categorize um, corruption as bad? Uh, yeah, I think corruption is bad because um, corruption means you lose focus on why you gained that power and what was the purpose of that power in the first place. The purpose of having that power was to create civilization and was to create abundance for the people of the tribe. So you create protection, you create provision, you then hopefully also create abundance, you can create wealth within that system, and then you distribute it within that system somehow fairly, depending on what kind of political ideas you have. And, and this is, of course, what you would try to do. So, so corruption then means that somebody goes on the side of the system, cuts through the system, 
And, and this is exactly what corruption often happens in the dark. It happens in closed rooms. It's like somebody pays you to not bring something to the market into competition with others. So they'll pay you some that you can put in your own pocket as a politician. So you can pretend that they won the bidding war and they should then have the contract, for example. That's what co corruption does all the time. And once corruption starts happening in a system, eventually the whole system becomes corrupt. Yeah. The problem with really corrupt countries is that everybody within that system is corrupt because you cannot even get a job. You cannot even get a position within that system without being part of the corruption. Exactly, and I would call that evil, but you don't believe in evil, so you would only call it destructive. I, I'm just calling it destructive. I, I'm, that's just society that's not operating at maximum efficiency. It, 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 it's operating at lower than maximum efficiency and only benefits some, namely those who are good at being corrupt rather than uh, you know, giving an advantage to those who are good at constructing things. It's not the guy who has a great plan for the improvement of society that gains power in that kind of society. It's just the guy who can play the game and play the game in the dark room and go behind other people's backs. And that's exactly what corruption is also often tied to violence becomes a very violent society. People start shooting each other because the rule of law falls apart. Because obviously the rule of law then becomes corrupt. You pay your way through a court. You don't follow rule of law. That's a typical example of a corrupt society. Yeah, and that is something you hear often about the American justice system, that if you have money, it treats you better. Then. Well, I think any society does that to begin with. I believe so, too. Okay. I believe that is true okay, here as well. We're arguing a lot about whether I'm a Marxist or not. You're obviously not. Um, and, and I think Marxism, in my case, is sociology and attitude. There's a lot of shit about Karl Marx that I really don't like at all. And you, I would agree with you. There are a lot of Karl Marx books that shouldn't even be read and buried somewhere. But uh, they're part of his oeuvre, and he has to be judged on his entire oeuvre. And, and, um, but there's certainly a Marxist perspective to the idea that we must not be naive about the fact that people who have resources in a specific society, and those resources are not evenly distributed, some people will be more powerful than others. Yes, no, this is true, yeah. uh, and I'm sure it's true. I'm, I'm just wondering about you know, the concept of fairness that Marx has, because I don't believe that it's fair that everyone gets the same. I think well, I don't that think Karl Marx argued that either. No, not no, he argued, really. he argued that those who worked hard should be fairly paid for what they do. That's not the same thing as evenly distributed. To begin with, the Karl Marx is a man. And the idea that everybody should have exactly the same is something that belongs to the inner circuit. It's a very effeminate sort of idea. Because when you work with women and they sit closer together and need to collaborate, then evenly distributing the resources among women is probably the best strategy for them. And if, you, if you're a matriarch and you're running a female collective, you're bound to evenly distribute whatever resources you have in between women. When with men, because men work differently and have different purposes and different, you know, contributions to commit to, then you can certainly argue that you don't have to evenly distribute the resources. So among men, it's easier to handle the fact that some guys have more than others. Yeah, because I think it's more fair. I mean, if you get what you deserve, that's, uh, I think, my idea of fairness. Well, I, I don't, I don't really, I'm not really into fairness at all. No, I, I'm just into the fact that these resources are unevenly distributed depending on capacity, and one of those capacities is corruption. I prefer than if they're evenly distributed according to merit rather than unevenly distributed according to corruption. But it's it's not it's not about fairness. It's just about the long term uh, validity of the system, the long term success of the system. 
So, no, I, I, I think one of the tragedies of modern social democracy is this idea that the effeminate idea that everybody should have exactly the same things, you know, regardless of, of how much effort they put into it. But that doesn't create any incentives for anybody to bother with anything in the first place. Yes. She ended up just sitting in a ring singing Kumbaya and nobody works. Precisely. And that is what decadence is. And then society falls apart. And that's, I think, where we are now. I don't know if you saw Twitter this morning, but uh, the head of our leftist party and the feminist party uh, both thought that uh, Russia Russia is having a big exercise, a military exercise in the Baltic right now. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you read about it. It's in the papers. Yeah. Uh, and uh, apparently everything that's going wrong in Sweden now is Russia's fault, according to the Social Democrats. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the leftists and the feminists have gone out and they're talking about uh, that tolkningsföretrade. Uh, How do you say that in English? Well, the right to, to interpret. Well, yeah, but I'm sure the SJWs have a... Uh, uh, their own vocabulary for this type of things, but uh, the feminist leader... Probably, who's the biggest victim in the room? Let him or her speak. <laughs> the feminist... Let it speak. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The feminist leader, Gudrun Schumann, uh, tweeted out that, um, that uh, uh, we have to talk to Russia about their military aggression because, you know, she feels that maybe it has something to do with uh, compensatory behavior. She's an idiot, Uh, this is a perfect example of somebody sits in the inner circuit and tries to expand the inner circuit to conquer the outer circuit without understanding how the outer circuit functions. Gudrun Schumann doesn't even understand how men operate. There's a lot of men in the military. They don't sit and talk and sing Kumbaya. They find that ridiculous. Yes. They will find her completely pathetic. It, you know, at the end of the day, it's about her being defended against outside forces, outside strengths, right? Exactly, and this is... And covering up for her own weakness, which is that she doesn't have a damn army. She doesn't have anybody who can protect her and other women, for that matter, if somebody attacks the country. Personally, I don't even think she has an argument. But, but when you look at Gudrun Schumann, she behaves and has behaved for 15, 20, as long as I can remember at least, because, you know, she's been around for a while. Uh, she's behaving that as if though she has complete strength. She's so self-assured. Yeah. Even when you debate her on television and catch her lying, she doesn't even flinch. <laughs> well, maybe she doesn't understand that she's lying. I don't know. No, no, she's okay in that case. Uh, that's not the problem at all. I see Gudrun Schumann as a perfect example of a politician who's, who's very right when she's in the right place, but who's very, very wrong when she's in the wrong place. So that means if you, if you speak like a matriarch who's somehow in a deluded way trying to protect younger women, then I think at least she's got her heart in the right place, all her strategies to, towards protecting young women. Yeah, but women the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Exactly. So it could even there be the road to hell. But it certainly is the road to hell when Gudrun Schumann and the feminist initiative and the contemporary feminists in Sweden try to approach the outer circle and try to understand how the outer circle operates. Meaning, when they look at the resources for society, they have no idea how that works. Their economic policies are disastrous. They have no understanding of the dynamics of economics at all. They think it's just a zero-sum game, and it's just like, we should try to grab as much of the cake as we possibly can, because the cake will stay the same no matter how we affect it. When in reality, the size of the cake is very much dependent on the policies you implement. So they don't understand economics. That means they don't understand provision. 
And the other thing they don't understand, the constant the outer circuit, which is usually what men do, is protection, meaning they're pacifists, meaning they're good girls, they're good women, and they just sing, you know, sit in a ring and sing around the guitar, and they can talk to anybody. The naivety from contemporary feminists is so bad that if a mass murderer acts somewhere, they think they can talk that mass murderer into dropping his gun and then becoming a peaceful little guy sitting next to them. Like if they could castrate an angry, aggressive man through talking to him. Would you define sweet. violence as a it's form of strength? Innate. Would you define violence as a form of strength? Yeah, it can absolutely be. I mean, you 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 could storm into another village and you could basically kill everybody and steal everything they have. And that is a form of strength, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it is a strength. So so she doesn't really understand strength. She doesn't understand outer circuit strength. She doesn't understand that the outer circuit could threaten her inner circuit if it goes completely wrong. But more than anything, if the outer circuit stops defending and stops providing for the inner circuit, society falls apart. So is that Gudrun Schiemann thinks that she could personally run a huge Swedish export company, for example, when in reality, Swedish export companies basically are the bastions of the Swedish economy. And it's through taxing these companies and these profits that Sweden, Sweden works. And it's, they're also providing jobs that pay people money and pay them salaries in Sweden. And she doesn't even understand this. She has no respect for this whatsoever. She has no respect for the outer circuit. This is when feminism has gone completely wrong and has become a danger to itself. When women have no respect for men any longer. Personally, I don't think... And no respect for what men contribute to society. So, uh, I personally don't think that Gudrun Schiedman uh, has her heart even in the right place. Personally, I think it's a sect and she's a sect leader. And I consider her to be evil, but you don't even believe in evil. So Well, you could argue whether she's cold-hearted or warm-hearted. No, if she's warm-hearted, then she's naive. And in a way, a warm-hearted, naive person is sometimes even worse than a cold-hearted person. At least know what they do. Well, my definition of evil would be that you know the difference between right and wrong. And you, choose, and, and you, you see that the right path is the harder path to choose. And the wrong path is the easier path path to choose and you choose the easier path. That would be evil for me. And good would be if you choose the hard path. Well, the thing is that a lot of people think that the means justify, no, 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 the, the goal justifies the means. And I think Gudrun Schiemann is certainly one of those politicians, meaning that she can say something without regard to whether it's true or not, if she thinks it serves her purposes. In that sense, she's a perfect postmodernist. Yes. And, that's and it's, it's, it's no coincidence that the actual ideology of feminist initiative is not feminism, it's intersectionalism. They will not protect women if if women are stuck inside another culture of which they're not allowed to have an opinion. That means that I think most other political parties are more respectful of women and women's rights than feminist initiative has. It should be called intersectionalist initiative because it is an intersectionalist party and that's a really, really strange ideology. Yeah. Really strange ideology. Essentially an ideology of we're afraid of telling anybody they're wrong at all. So anybody should be allowed to speak as long as they're the biggest victim in the room. Meaning you com you have complete disregard for the truth. You have complete disregard for the substance of any argument. It's all a little children's game where whoever is feeling offended or feeling not seen or heard should then take over the room and talk. And decisions are never made and that's exactly when civilization fall apart, falls apart. I see. Yeah, I, I agree completely. The, I mean, if, if they would rule, it would be disastrous. It would be absolutely disastrous. It would be racist. First well, of all. It, it would just be incompetent in the most extreme form. It would be a system where no decisions are ever made. That's, that's where you would arrive. 
You just endless debates about nothing. You don't think they'd get to camps and ovens for white cis men soon enough? I think they're even incapable of doing that. And that scares me even more, to be honest about it. Because if society falls apart, we don't need the ovens even to die. We die from a lack of resources to begin with. That is true. Yeah. But uh, yeah, because I remember last fall when they kicked out uh, a young black man from the feminist party because he wanted to focus on the girls in the suburbs, that is, immigrant girls, second-generation immigrants who live in honor cultures and are, well, at least according to their Swedish-born sisters, oppressed. Well, the feminist initiative completely ignored immigrant girls and their rights for years. It was only early in the spring of 2018 they suddenly turned around and pretended that they cared for these girls all the time. So they're, they're so full of lies and bullshit, it's incredible. Well, and they're rewriting their own history constantly, which is like, it, it, it's painstaking to see it. It's, it, it, it's just, it's so, it's so painful to see it. It's just like, will they really think that we don't record what they said in the past and can hold them accountable for it? It's just ridiculous. And this, uh, this again, there is a problem with women when they have access power is that within the female collective, it doesn't really pay off to be truthful. No, Your focus is so strong on hierarchy and status-seeking, so it's all a game, and your words, whatever you phrase, is a game where you're involved in finding your position within the hierarchy. And then when these women move out in the bigger world and are encountered by powerful men, all of a sudden they crash into this idea that your arguments actually have to be valid and truthful. Otherwise, you're not getting ahead in the debate. And I think this is a shock for a lot of feminist women when they, when they finally get elected and they become powerful politicians and suddenly they're, hold, they're held accountable for what they say. So they end up with a war over symbols. They end up with, let's make this new law because it looks as if we just did something. Yep. When in reality, just fucking up society and make everything more complicated and making things worse for women. And this is what feminists constantly do. So what they do is create chaos. In yes. And uh, would you care to define chaos, or should I? Well, chaos <laughs> is the opposite of order. So. Yes, it is, and because I've been uh, uh, well listening to us yesterday and you especially, I've I've seen that now everything seems to have a Taoist uh, dialectic, where black and white, chaos, order, weakness, strength, truth, lies. Uh, so uh, I thought we'd move into chaos and order. For me, chaos simply is, uh, when you define order, you will find out what chaos is. It is what ends up on the outside of order. Well, the interesting third dialectical opposition is culture and nature. So in relation to humans and how we relate to weakness and strength and we relate to chaos and order, we would also say culture and nature. And what I'm getting at here is that in a fundamental psychological sense, the matrix and the female body is associated with chaos. And that's exactly why polytheistic religions always have a chaos goddess and a goddess of the ocean, because the ocean also represents chaos, according to Freud. So, uh, and the opposite of that is phallus, where phallus represents order and strength in that case, but phallus also represents culture. Now, if phallus does become too powerful, to the extent that matrix evaporates and or is you know made redundant or whatever, we move into a completely totalitarian state, and then suddenly we're no longer cultured. We, we, the, the problem is everything becomes so stale that change is no longer possible. When change is no longer possible, we've actually arrived at a new form of weakness. It's totalitarian weakness. So that means you get a state that is incredibly strong, controls its population, but creativity comes to standstill. 
So civilization does not proceed forward at all. If anything, it goes backwards. That's like North Korea compared to South Korea. North Korea being the perfect example of society that's completely phallic without being metrical. Whereas in South Korea, you keep the balance between phallus and matrix, and then you have a thriving creative culture. Because you need both. You need both phallus and matrix. So the order cannot be a complete order, because that's death. The order has to be an order within chaos. So the chaos can be ordered in a way that has a creative output, a constructive output. The same thing goes for strength. A strength that is so strong that it doesn't see its own mistakes or its own faults becomes a corrupt strength. So strength needs to be complemented with a certain weakness. For example, by a parent taking care of a child or an older generation fostering a younger generation. Means that you use your strength to train something that's weak so that that weak thing can then be strong in the future. And this is an example of, of strength and weakness. And again, it's culture. It's culture that tames and fosters nature so that nature can become culture. But if you only have culture with no nature at all, that's a dead culture. That's a culture of death. So the dialectical relationship, according to Hegel, has to go on and be maintained all the time. The trick is then to maintain this dynamic at maximum output constantly. And this is what's really, really difficult with ordering chaos, with strength and weakness, which ultimately just humans is culture and nature. I, I think chaos is pretty much everything, and order is our concept, trying to make sense of our existence, and also not live in chaos, which can be rather hard on humans. Well, there's a lot of order. We, we create a lot of order. For example, if you go outside and you tame a few plants and a few trees, and you create a garden. Yeah. You just created order out of chaos. Nature in itself is chaotic. So a wild forest that you have no control over, that grows any way it likes, regardless of what humans are up to, is chaotic in that sense. That can be a nice chaos, but it is a chaos. Now when you create a garden, then suddenly you create an ordering chaos, meaning the plants still grow as if they were in a chaotic forest, but you set them in certain rows. And this is, for example, why farming is a perfect example of order in chaos. As long as we were running around on the planet and trying to find all our food, we were never more than 3 million people at most on the planet. We could not maintain a bigger population because as long as you're hunting and collecting, you cannot be more than 3 million on the entire planet. There's not enough food for you otherwise. And suddenly we had large-scale farming. You could produce an abundance of food. So this is exactly what order in chaos, why it's so mystical to us and why, it's, why it has this enormous attraction is that when order in chaos arrives, or when the Messiah arrives for that matter, when order in chaos arrives, there will be abundance for everybody. And uh, growing crops is basically the Messiah then? There's a connection, yes, absolutely. The mythology of the potential of ordering chaos arises with written language and the magic of written language. And the magic of written language is one, number one, is that we have a third party between you and me. We can have a conversation between you and me and we can agree on things along the timeline. We can write contracts. The other thing we do with written language is we can store information outside of our own heads. Because we can store information outside of our own heads, the disaster that used to happen, one of the elderly died, is no longer a disaster. As long as the elderly person's written down the information they had in their head, we can build on that information. We don't have to repeat the previous generation's mistakes, and thereby we can create civilization. That means you cannot have civilization without written language first. There's not a single example of civilization without written language first. Because before written language existed, we could never store more information than we could in our own heads. Yeah. That means we had a maximum ceiling to how much information we could have in the tribe at all. And that maximum ceiling was the same 
for tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. So that is one of our strengths. Uh, and by that, I will also return to the concept of strength because Jordan P Peterson was being lambasted in Swedish media a few weeks ago for uh, celebrating strength. Uh, and the writer in that particular Swedish paper thought that this can easily lead to uh, starting to despise weakness. Well, we should despise weakness. You think we so? We should despise weakness when it's in the wrong place. I give you a perfect example. I don't despise the weakness in children at all. I find it quite charming that children are children and that they're dependent on their parents and, and, and on grown-ups for their survival. But I find it despisable, certainly, when I see a grown-up person behaving like a child. That's a sign of weakness that I certainly despise and should be despised. Because otherwise I cannot help that grown-up person to get a last chance in life to get their fucking shit together and become a grown-up. And I think a grown-up who refuses to grow up and insists on being a child is nothing but a burden on society. Nothing else. I, 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 I find no excuse at all for somebody who has the chance to be a grown-up and contribute when they can, who insists on not contributing. Okay, but let's say that there is someone who has um, been born uh, with less capacity than, for instance, you. Yeah. Uh, And uh, on top of that, it has an enormous amount of bad, bad luck. Yeah. So would you still consider that person to be infantile or can you... I'm sure find... I could find a role for that person in the tribe. To begin with, that person's story in itself is a good story that needs to be told. Life can be this tough. I mean, the Bible, for example, and all holy scriptures are full of these characters who, who are exposed to enormous weaknesses and they realize that they're really weak, but they can also teach us a lesson about life in general. They have value. Their story is valuable to begin with. And what I always work with is that when I work with men and women, I, I always make people try to find the one thing where they do contribute. And you can be a specialist on one single thing. And you can be really weak in every other department in your life and still be enormously valuable for the tribe and the community. So you should then, you know, nurture the fact you have this one strength and then play that. We are not generally strong. So There's Stephen no Hawking would be a good example. Exactly. Of Stephen Hawking is a perfect example of that. He's incredibly strong, at least at one thing. Strong enough to actually be stronger than anybody else in the world for a period of time at that thing, which was to which was physics and cosmology. So... I, I don't see that happening. And we need to celebrate strength because we're dependent on strength. It's like, if we don't celebrate strength and celebrate weakness instead, we infantilize society. We make the child our future instead of the adult. And that is an incredibly dangerous path to take. And again, it's the feminization and, and more than anything, the infantilization of society. Well, we arrived at this place and it's very, very dangerous. I, I, and uh, outside wrong. No, no, no. I, but I understand. I, I, understand. I, I can't really... Um convince myself to despise strength. I know I have it in me naturally to dis uh, uh, despise weakness, I mean. Yeah. Uh, because I want to celebrate strength, I want to be strong, uh, and I know that uh, in order to be strong in, in as many respects as I can, I need to start to despise the weakness in myself. Well, you could put it the other way around. You don't have to talk about despise at all. You can talk about what you celebrate. Either you celebrate the hero or you celebrate the victim. Either the hero is the ideal for a society or the victim is the ideal for society. And this is the thing over long periods of time. Again and again and again, a society that celebrates the heroic will move ahead and will be civilized and will work. But within but a, this... a society that celebrates the victim will not work. And I'm not talking about celebrating the victim because I don't think that's functioning at all. But what I'm saying is... But that's what with... celebrating weakness is. What? Celebrating the victim is celebrating weakness. 
It is certainly, yeah. but but what I'm saying is, if we start to celebrate strength too much, we uh, because when I want to become strong, I need to start for some reason despising the weakness in myself, so that I want to run from it as far as I can, symbolically speaking. You don't have to. You don't even have to no. look at your weakness. Uh, I don't. No, you don't. But how will I uh, then resolve my weakness or overcome my weakness? Well, why should you? Uh, because I want to be strong. Well, you can focus on where you're strong and be even stronger there. And then you can let somebody else be strong where you're weak. That's called dependency on other people. And I don't see any reason why you should be so scared of being dependent on others because the tribe actually is an alliance of dependencies. That's what a family is. That's what a relationship is. That's what a man and woman living together is. So for you, strength is not independence? No, not no, at all. It's interdependence? Yes. It is the tribe that should be strong, not me. All right, but you don't believe in individuals? No, I believe we are individuals, and I believe we seek social communities where we can thrive using our strengths to contribute to others. If my strength is only there for me to be strong, it's not much of a strength, is it? If my strength can strengthen others, if I can contribute and support others through my strength, then it's a real strength. So it's not about me at the end of the day anyway. It is about me contributing to a lot of people through my strength, including my family, for example, whereas I can also trust other people to support me where I'm weak. So we create a really strong network. If, if you hunt, if you go on a hunting team or whatever, it's all about finding your different strengths and weaknesses and then play into them. Because if you sit there and say that nobody's allowed to be weak, we can only hunt if we're all strong and we're all strong in every department, you're going to spend your entire time working out on trying to be strong. You're not going to have much at all. Hmm. You don't have that time. I see. So, but, but, so let's move into collectivism versus individualism. And let's start by you defining individualism, because I know that for you it's a Cartesian concept. It's a Cartesian religion. It starts in 1637 with the world's most famous tweet, I think, therefore I am. It's a bad religion, but it was successful. So it's a bad religion when it comes to humans and their happiness, okay? Humans will always end up being completely dissatisfied if they actually believe that the world is a competition between 7 billion competitors. We're all competing of who's going to be on top and who's going to be But I don't above. understand that. We competed with the rest of the sperms for, to get first to the egg, and then we... The sperms competed, not you. Well, I was one of them, or half of me was well, one Well, that them. wasn't you. You is you are the actuality of the sperm eating the egg. And after that, you don't compete at all. You're probably alone or you might have a twin next to you in the womb. But you actually get your mother's full attention for the next nine months. And there's no competition at all. No, there is no competition in no. the womb then. Uh, no. But let's say I move into kindergarten once I'm, you know, born. Yeah. Uh, and then there are other kids there. Yeah. And we're competing. And do you, do you think, who do you think is successful of the kids in the kindergarten? The kid who competes with other kids or the kid who finds out he can collaborate with the other kids? What do you think wins? What do you think gains the most at the end of the day? Well, I wasn't one of the kids who could either collaborate or uh, the other thing, so... I was pretty good at collaboration. I did well. Yes, I'm pretty sure you were, but you're yeah. a collectivist, aren't you? No, I'm not. Are, I'm an individual. You? I, no, this is the thing. If you and I were polar bears sitting here right now having a conversation if we even talk to each other, because polar bears are very solitary animals. I would definitely defend the idea of individualism. Individualism works for a species, 
that operates on its own as a single individual and basically takes care of itself. A polar bear is incredibly vulnerable if it isn't strong on its, strong on its own. Okay, so they also eat their own children, which is perfect for individuals. They don't even have much regard for their own children. They're completely obsessed with themselves. Okay, human beings are not like that at all. We are a flock animal. We even have the biggest flocks of possibly all flocks. I mean, we have huge flocks, at least of all mammals, we have the biggest flocks of all. So our flocks tend to be about 200 or even 250 people. That's how we orientate ourselves through reality. We're still in that social biology. We haven't really changed over the past four or five thousand years since, no, but we, that's... since we left the nomadic tribe. So I think it's unfair to human beings to regard them as being in constant competitive mode against each other. Well, I, I understand your point, but I, I see competition everywhere in nature. I think everything is competition. Uh, basically, I, I, I see at a... a between eco- teams, yes. Or between species. Between species, teams, within species, I, 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 you know, the selfish gene concept, basically. I think it's wrong. I think it's a terrible book. <laughs> I think it's wrong. I think it's written by an autistic guy who writes about himself I, I, and I, then applies his own personality, perception of his own personality, on humanity. This is like a transgender person who's not just happy with their own transition and having changed gender, but thinking everybody should change gender. Okay, when, when you turn your own personal project and your personality into universal norm for all, you're dead wrong. And the selfish gene should be called the tribal gene, if anything. We did not survive a single human beings. We did not live or die, according to evolution, as single human beings at all. Either the tribe survived or the tribe went under. There was constant warfare between the tribes because there was a lack of food. A lack of food and a lack of territory meant the tribes were in constant competition with each other, which exactly why the outer circle was so damn important, because the outer circle was essentially a bunch of men and a few lesbians who were warriors and fought for the tribe against other tribes. And sometimes diplomats, you know, priests or whatever at the, at the outer circle could negotiate a peace, which would be temporary. Sooner or later, you would go into conflict. As soon as there was a lack of food, there would be conflict. So nomads were at war with each other constantly within tribes. A single nomad could never survive war. You'd get killed instantly. So you needed the rest of the tribe to support you during warfare. So we human beings are trained to think that if I stay within my tribe, I'm safe. If I go outside of my tribe, I'm unsafe. And if my tribe becomes weak, I'm unsafe. But if my tribe is strong, I'm safe. So when women, for example, are sexually attracted to men that are physically strong, it's because they're sexually attracted to protectors protectors. They like the men to look like they're protecting them. Um, but they do so in groups. Women go out together. They go to a bar on a Friday night and get a drink and have a glass of white wine. They sort out their, their hierarchy in between them. They then walk out as a flock to the bar. That's exactly why they're more clever than men are, because men go cruising on their own, which makes them weak. Yeah. M- women sit together and they sort of check in with each other constantly what they're doing. And precisely by they're doing that is that they can then tap into the male hierarchy instantly. And then it's the woman who's on top of the female hierarchy who will go for the guy who they consider to be top of the male hierarchy. Meaning what men actually do when they compete is that they sort out the hierarchy in between them. But it's not a competition like, I want to get on top of you. It's rather a reward you get for your accomplishments as a contributor. So that means... If you were a great contributor in the hunting team when they were out hunting, and then you fell a couple of boar and a moose or whatever, and you drag these you know, corpses back to the tribe and you get food, right? The entire team is celebrated. That's exactly why, why team sports are huge among men. 
That's why we love to go to soccer games or American football games or basketball games. And the, the different players in a team play to their different strengths and they become a strong team together. Then the actual competition is between the two teams. Which team is the strongest? Which team has figured out to use its strength and, and its resources to maximum effect? And this is where it becomes clever. And this is why we appreciate those guys who are clever. We appreciate strategy. And that's why Slatan was hated for the first part of his career, I suppose, because he was a diva on the football. If yeah, you. because he doesn't, his team doesn't really gain from that. Sweden qualified for the World Cup without Slatan. I find that very interesting. Now, having a prima donna the team isn't necessarily a benefit, even if he's really, really good once he gets the ball. I see. But at the end of the day, it is who you pass the ball to, and it's 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 the end of the day. You're gonna have to you know out. You have to fool the goalkeeper and get the, the get the ball in the into the goal, and that's a team effort. And what we do admire, what men admire when they go to soccer game, is that one team is more clever than the other. And we love the underdog. We love the team that looks weaker beforehand, but still can outsmart the other team. Way more than we love the guy who has the biggest muscles. The same thing goes for women. They don't just look at the muscle mass of the male body at all when they go cruising. They rather look at how can a guy cleverly use his resources and cleverly use his connections with other men to actually end up on top of the male hierarchy. And then he's rewarded. All right, so let's move back. Because I see, as you, I mean, you take the cart as basically the starting point of individualism with his cogito ergo sum, I believe that's yeah. what he said. But um, I see individualism growing out of the birth of monotheism. And I, I consider it a great truth. Because what happens, I think, when, when monotheism is born is that the individual is born. There's no, a, there's an, I think you're wrong. No, well, but let me tell you a story. You missed the printing press. So, so you cannot have individualism out of monotheism in itself. It never happened. You had monotheism, many different versions around the world. None of them became individualistic. But once monotheism collided with the printing press, that's but let me tell me you my definition, yeah. how, how, how I view it, yeah. because I have a much uh, a very much simpler view of this, I think, than you do. For me, it's very simple. If you have you have two types of herds: the collectivist and the individualist. They're mm -hmm. both herds. They're flocks, and there's. Lots of people, there's co cooperation within the flock. Totally agreed. Yes, but they have different founding principles in varying degrees. I mean, I don't think that there is a completely collectivist uh, group and a completely individualistic group, but for sake of argument, I illustrate with these two extremes. So uh, the collectivist group will always put the group before the individual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. While the individualist group, in its most extreme, will always put the individual before the group. In and which this case is it's not even a group, to be, to be honest about it. Well, you can be a group of individuals, couldn't you? No, they're terrible at organizing each other when they're individuals. I've thing. noticed as much when I, you know, that's why liberal parties Liberal political parties suck all the time. They're right? very easy to divide and conquer. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's hard to organize a group of autistic people. Uh, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. But no, but, but don't let me interrupt. It's no, very but, interesting. But, but, go but, on, but, go but, on. I usually take like a story. It's a folk story from the Jewish tradition. It's a story about how Abraham came to uh, rebel against his father and the customs of his father's tribe. Uh, his father's name was Terach, and he was uh, an idolatry maker. He made idols according to the one God, false idols. So that was his job, a very important job in the tribe, mm -hmm. right? It's an intellectual and creative job, and he produces their gods, the, the images of their gods for the people. He's I mean, both an artist and a priest at the same time. Artist and priest, and also has the important job of, you know, uh, protecting the culture of the tribe. 
right? Mm -hmm. he, he's manufacturing their I do culture. hope he took drugs to satisfy himself during work. I, I hope so, and yeah. I, I suspect he did, because mm -hmm. most people at that time did as part of their religion. All the artists, priests I've met in my life take drugs. Well, I, I, I can't say that I haven't tried them once or twice per day Outside for the last Sweden, 15 years, yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> anyway, so anyway, what happens is that Abraham uh, apparently becomes of age, so he's to present the family sacrifice to the moon god. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And he, he goes together with everyone else in Ur in the, in the town, they go to the big festival grounds and he presents, you know, the, the sacrifice and he looks up at the stone and he sees nothing there, it's just stone. He, he doesn't feel the presence of God. And this is when he discovers God and God starts talking to him. And, he's, and he, he tells his father that, you know, this is all false, all these gods are false, we should listen to the voices in my head. Uh, and Terach beats his child senseless, hopefully, because, you know, he's risking not only his life and his family's life, he's risking the life of the entire tribe mm -hmm. but by questioning, right? Mm -hmm. But in this questioning, this is where I think the individual uh, rises, because when Abraham stands up and says to his father, no, I don't agree with you, he's mm -hmm. actually going against the entire tribe. And in that moment, as I see it, the individual is born. I don't think it is. I think what Abram did is so incredibly historically significant. But what he does is that he dares to say that we can unite these two tribes at this ritual place, because Ur was a ritual place. It was a connection place between different tribes, right? And until then, at the ritual place, you'd say, this is one ritual place, we meet, but the tribe is more important than the ritual place itself, meaning you can keep your different gods. So essentially, you have one god in one tribe, you have another god in another tribe, you have a third god in the third tribe. And essentially, each tribe has its own Ur-father. So they have their own god to refer to. And you can do that for a while because then you can still negotiate, but you're allowed to pull out of the negotiation, you can go into war at any given time. What Abraham essentially says, and this is the brilliance of monotheism, is that he for the first time claims, what if all the three gods of all these three tribes is one of the same God. We just need to take one layer off. It's very Hegelian, this. You just take off one layer and we'll discover that God has the same face. It's the same God behind all three. And this is the radical move that Abram does. So he actually unifies three tribes and makes a bigger collective. It's not about individualism. Well, no, maybe not. He's just making a single God. And that single God is just one God because then the, the commonwealth... This is a beautiful word. The commonwealth of all the tribes that have gathered at Ur is more important than the tribes themselves. And this, interesting enough, is the first shift from the villages to the city. Because then Ur itself also has a higher authority than any of the inner circuit inside the different tribes. So that means this power is shifted from the different tribes to Ur itself, and the highest authority is now with Ur. So you can, for example, create a rule of law at Ur that is superior to the role of law in the different but tribes. But that's not what happened. What happened was that he threatened uh, the customs of the tribe with yeah. this new idea. Yes. Uh, and uh, his father beat him and sent him to bed and said, stop this nonsense talk. I mean, you're risking my livelihood and our lives. Yes, yeah? of course uh, that's what happened. That's always what happened when you present a new idea and a paradigm shift is about to happen because first you crash and, and you fail. Then eventually monotheism wins. The idea is there all of a sudden. Somebody's presented the idea. It seemed to be mad at the time. But once the idea is there, it can happen later. If Descartes in 1637 would have said that he actually put God, he would have killed God by introducing the individual. 
he would have been killed by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was incredibly powerful in Europe in 1637. It, didn't, it wasn't until Nietzsche in the 19th century that, you know, there could be a philosopher openly said God is dead and not be killed by saying it because the Catholic Church is so important. So what Descartes had to do in 1637 to save his neck was say, well, God is asleep. You know, yeah. and, and in a way, if Abraham had done something like that, he probably would have escaped better. But he was brave enough, actually, to proclaim this is the future. This is the religion we need next. And, you know, it's more true than anything that before, because it works better for us if we go to this religion. And of course, he fails at the time. And that's exactly why it's part of the story. The, the, the story you learn is that, OK, if you're ahead of the curve and you speak the truth, you're an honorable man, but you'll run into problems. Yeah. Just just be aware of that, right? I, and that's exactly why Abraham is a hero. Abraham, I, I personally don't think it's a historical, I think it's a ritual drama to teach us something. But what happens is, so Abraham goes to bed, he, he, he sneaks up in the middle of the night, he goes into his father's workshop, he takes a big stick and he smashes all the idols except for the moon god, the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And he puts the stick in the hand of the moon god, and then he goes to bed. And then his—that's how—that's how you shift from polytheism to monotheism. You make one god higher than the others, and you kill the other gods. I don't sure, I'm not sure it was the moon god originally. It's probably the sun god. In most religions, it is. But you do say one god, and you don't say the first god. You don't say the rain god. You save the sun god. You save the upholder of the universe when you only gonna have one god. Zoroaster did the same thing in Persia. His revolution before any of the Jews. Long, you know, yeah, se yeah. 700 years before Moses. So Aster conducted the first monotheistic revolution and actually succeeded. But he took a lot of time and he allied himself with people at the court and finally he won over. And Zoroastrianism was established as the first monotheistic religion. It was the same thing. It was but can I ask kill you all the other gods Sura and just keep the phallic god. And then Akhenaten attempted the same thing in Egypt, and failed, but at least tried. So the idea was out there. So in a way, Abraham in this way was more like Akhenaten. It's interesting that you uh, bring up Agnaton, and I want to return to that, but I want to ask you about Zoroastrianism first, because you're one of the few people who have exactly converted to Zoroastrianism. Well, there, there are a few thousand who have done that now. I was one of the first to do it. I was one of the first Westerners to convert when the possibility was opened up in the early 1990s. But uh, there are thousands have converted by now, and there are more and more people converting. There's a lot of people in the Middle East who were Muslims before who are very tired of Islam. They're also not but converting. But Zoroastrianism was a huge religion. It before. was a huge religion. It was well, before before Islam arrived. It was the biggest religion in the world in terms of number of followers, and it became corrupt. That's exactly was vulnerable to a Muslim invasion. It was a peaceful religion, it became corrupt. But Zoroastrianism's most famous contribution is, of course, when, when the Persians invade Babylon 600 before Christ. And the Persian emperor, Darush, goes to the temple of Marduk and kisses the feet of the Babylonian god, which is actually a reintroduction of polytheism within a monotheistic system because it's creating an empire. And he thinks the empire is more important than religion, so he tolerates religions that are different, which sets the Jews free, meaning you then have the Jewish move from Babylon to the Promised Land. Yeah. I, he I, enables that. And I, I wanted to ask you about Zoroastrianism quickly be, before we continue, because uh, I know that 
isn't there like a, a dualist center in their monotheism? Isn't there like a dark angel and a light angel wrestling no, no, with no, each no. other in a sort no, no, of Taoist no. sense? No? no, 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 not at all. If you read the Wikipedia articles and sort of you end up in the wrong place. What well, I decided, that is what I have done, so it's, it's, please inform there, me. <laughs> okay, Nietzsche is misunderstood. Freud is misunderstood. Hegel is misunderstood. And so, obviously you are. So yes, <laughs> any great thinker is bound then. to be misunderstood and misinterpreted for all kinds of purposes. So, um, but the most misunderstood phenomenon ever in human history is Zoroastrianism. It is a really noble, amazing religion, or it's really a belief system. It's 3,700 years old. Many of the modern ideals we strive for today, like equality between the genders, ecological sustainability, etc., has been practiced by Zoroastrians forever, okay? And they don't bury their dead. You know, they put their deads out to be fed to vultures and animals because it's just, it's just re the recycling of the body, not to be mistaken for reincarnation. They don't believe in reincarnation at all. It's just the recycling of everything is part of Zoroastrian religion. But it still also has the phallic aspect to it. It has the idea of utopia and vision. It is actually the first religion that clearly defines that we need to go towards somewhere. We need to find a direction for society. If we don't have the sort of phallic direction to our society, it will fall apart. So Zoroastrianism, just like Taoism, has both the circular, the recycling, which is the inner circuit uh, phenomenology, and it has the outer circuit phenomenology, which is that we're going to get somewhere. A linear perspective of the time. The linear perspective, too. Yeah. So that's the duality of Zoroastrianism. And in Zoroastrianism, they're called Aura and Mazda. And Mazda is being... Wait a second, being, fundamentally being is what is recycled. It returns. It's the same thing. It returns. The seasons are the same. You know, every spring looks the same. Every autumn looks the same. You have equinoxes. You have solstices. You celebrate those things and you're within the master. You're within the aura. So this is the aura. The master, though, is consciousness or sense. And the human being strives towards something higher. Because consciousness comes out of biology. Biology comes out of chemistry. Chemistry comes out of physics. So nature in itself can be inspired to emerge into a higher state of what it is. And this dream that consciousness could become a super consciousness or it becomes something higher than, than, than what it is today because it comes out of that sort of ladder. We can walk to the next step. It's the phallic within Zoroastrianism. And that's, it. that's what Zoroastrianism ultimately worship as human beings. So you define yourself first as a human being, and then you take a stand and say, aura, being, and master, sense or consciousness, are the two fundamental elements of reality. These are the two most important things. But they're not two different gods. I choose one of them. So in a way, it's like yang and yin in Taoism, where you choose yang rather than yin. So as a Zoroastrian, you choose to be a master yasni. I am a follower of consciousness. I'm interested in consciousness. I'm interested in the exploration of and the expansion of consciousness. I think it's a brilliant idea. The world becomes more conscious of itself. So you take that decision. And the funny thing is, what's really interesting in Zoroastrianism is that it eventually arrives with its twin religion called Buddhism. And Buddhism arrives about 1,200 years later with the Buddha in India. And the Buddha really celebrates yin. You know, the Buddha celebrates enlightenment. The Buddha celebrates extinction. Like we're going to get out of, you know, the circle of reincarnation. So you take the recycling principle and you put it into the mode of reincarnation, meaning your soul has to get out of this cycle of reincarnation and eventually reach extinction. And that's called enlightenment. And then you fulfilled everything and you can die. Now, that's, of course, at the ultimate celebration of the circular. This is a very, very feminine religion, the inner circle religion. And the wonderful thing that happens is that in, in the second century, 
In northern India and Iran are unified and become one empire. It's really hard to unify Iran in India, geographically speaking, because you've got the Hindu Kush mountains in between. But historically speaking, linguistically, culturally, they should be unified. Iranians and Indians are very close related. They're Indo-Europeans, like us in Europe. So it's just like uniting, you know, parts of Europe. And that does happen with the Kushan Empire from the second century forward. And for 500 years, northern India, Afghanistan, and Iran are united into one empire called the Kushan Empire. The Kushan Empire for 500 years has two state religions, Zoroastrianism and Buddhism. And they live in peace. There's not a single trace of conflict between Zoroastrians and Buddhists. They live in parallel. You find Zoroastrian temples next to the Buddhist temples in Afghanistan, in Iran, in northern India. All the traces we can see of Zoroastrians and Buddhism is that this was a very peaceful period for about 500 years. And this is, of course, because Buddhism is the religion of the inner circuit. And Zoroastrianism is the ultimate religion of the outer circuit. So they're a perfect combination. Hmm. The only problem is that you've got the Muslims storming in from the West in the 8th century. And then the empire falls apart. But I find it incredibly historically interesting. And to me, when you then come to China, Buddhism and Zoroastrianism are literally unified under one religious umbrella, and that's called Taoism. So to me, you either study Taoism or start there, and then eventually you can study Zoroastrianism and Buddhism, which is the Persian and Indian religions that are combined. But if you study Zoroastrianism, you do take a stand for the yang in Taoism. And if you're a Buddhist, you take a stand for the yin, as if it is superior to the other. And why I like the idea of not staying with a firm dialectic, but actually like to take a stand for one side over the other, recognizing one side over the other, but recognizing the two sides, recognizing that you, you could take a stand for one side over the other and say that for humanity as a whole, this side will be more important over time, is the fact that you put the whole dialectic into movement. This is why the Hegelian version of this is to say that, no, we're not going to accept Yang and Yin. We're going to take a stand for Yang and Yin and get the whole thing moving. So, so one thing pulls the, the other along, yeah, you right? Keep the plate spinning, like one of these people who you see in a market, you know, with big sticks, and then they're spinning plates on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and the trick is to just keep the plates spinning, spinning. Otherwise, I mean, they fall down and crash. Exactly. And I've sat uh, through a lot of conversations with Buddhist teachers, and and we always arrive at this very interesting point that we highly respect each other's religions and really take it down to sort of an archetype of personality that there's a choice. You choose between Buddhism and Zoroastrianism. They've never been in conflict. Not once. There's even a hybrid version, but clearly a hybrid version, that Dzogchen Buddhism, the Tibetan form of Buddhism. You look at the practices of Tibetan Buddhism, it's filled with Persian Zoroastrian practices. And of course, there's a lot of Buddhist practices that have origins in Burma and India too. But Dzogchen Buddhism is incredibly interesting because it has both elements in it. So it's really a hybrid. And that's why Dzogchen Buddhists can easily also communicate with the Taoist because you have the two powers, but you, you play the two powers as if they're equals. But in reality, one of them is driving and leading the other. But they can also shift, so they, the, one can drive for a while, and then the other can drive for a while, and then, right? Yeah, that's how yeah. dialectics work. Yeah. To me, it is, it is this careful study of, say, Burma, which is my favorite Buddhist country. It's incredibly, intensely, deeply Buddhist country and a wonderful culture. And then I studied the culture of Iran, especially pre-Islamic Iran, and compared the two. And I get much more inspired with this sort of obsession with phallic civilization that I find in Iranian culture, the more imperial 
prospects of Iranian culture. Like, we're going to build an empire together. Like, that never really happened in Burma in the same sense, because in a deeply immersed Buddhist culture, you're less imperial. You're more obsessed with everyday life and, and, and the obsessions of the inner circuit. I find it quite beautiful to, to see the two things, the inner circuit and outer circuit in this sense, in a deep religious sense, as mutually dependent on each other. Of course they are. Men and women are mutually dependent on each other. Yin and yang are mutually dependent on each other. But I don't think we have to sort of obsess and neurotically balance them and always make sure that they are equally balanced, equally seen, equally heard, equally understood. I, I just wanted to understand the, what I see as a kernel of dualism in Zoroastrianism, but you gave me more than an explanation. Oh, it's actually a monist religion. It's incredibly monist, radically monist. Like uh, The problem with Western thinking is we didn't really have any monists in Western thinking until Spinoza, who was taught by Sufis in Spain. And what do you mean when you say monism? Monism is the belief that there's one universe and everything is interconnected within this universe and there's nothing outside of that universe. Period. Accept it. Modern materialism is built on monism. All right, because we haven't seen a single trace from science, from physics, or anywhere else that there is anything else but one world. And that world is one world. It's the only thing that's one. It's the world itself. So what happens in the morning, anyway, is that Terak walks into his workshop to find all the idols smashed. Yes. Uh, and in the middle of the room, there's just one idol left, a moon god, and it's holding a big stick. So he rushes in, wakes up Abraham, starts slapping him around again, asking him, why have you destroyed my workshop? You've killed us. We, mm -hmm. will, become, we will become anathema, pariah, uh, from this city now. Mm -hmm. uh, and Abraham just looks innocently at his father, Terach, and he says, well, father, I didn't smash the statues. It was the moon god. Mm -hmm. And Terach says, the moon god is just a statue of stone. And then, aha, that's your point. And then they have to escape to the country of Canaan, where God has said that uh, most, uh, Abraham needs to start his new religion. Yeah. So they all need to escape. This is not in the Bible. This is a folk story, basically, yeah. uh, to explain you know, the, what happened and how it happened and well, it was, so on. It was, of course, a, ma I, it was a massive break. It's like what I'm trying to do in my work today is to break with individualism and get us out of that trap. No, I, I, and I, basically invent a new religion in a sense or a new metaphysics. And you have. Uh, and I, I back you. I, I, I truly do. But yeah. you know, I, I don't necessarily believe. I, I have to believe in it individualism because otherwise I wouldn't exist. Well, that's for you. <laughs> when you try to make it universal, it, you know, it's a bit autistic to think that just because it was an idea that saved you or it worked for you, then it should be valid for all yes, human but, beings. Yeah, yeah. That, that's when you go wrong because yes, it isn't. No, I'm, I'm sure I'm, sure I'm uh, not, not wrong, but, I, I th but, but this is my point because what, what I see here is when Terach stands up to, uh, no, no, when Abraham stands up to Terach, what he's doing is He's bringing monotheism towards polytheism. Yes. So, so he stands up like an individual mm -hmm. and he says to Terach, representing the collective, you are wrong, I am right. And when he says, I am right and you are wrong, he is in essence creating the individual. Because this is mythologically the first time an individual stands up and says, no, I'm more important than the group. What I say is more important. I don't think he does that. Th 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 then what do you think? No, I don't think he does. I think Abraham speaks for the tribe of the future. He doesn't speak for himself at all. This is not his religion to be practiced only by him. He's declaring a new religion for his children, yes. for future generations. That's not individualistic. But you can see how that creation led to Judaism, and then Judaism to Christianity, and Christianity to the cart, and the cart individualism. No, I think individualism was born out of practicality, 
the printing press made books affordable. Books were magical. Before the printing press in 1450, uh, owning a book was enormous possession. It's just like, if you had four books, okay, VIP lounge bodyguards, you were a wealthy guy, right? You'd get laid. So a book was handwritten. The average cost of producing a book would be something like between 150,000 and 200,000 euros in 1449. That would be the cost. Because it would take a monk sitting down. It would take monks and nuns months to write a book, which essentially just rewriting a book that they just copied, right? So the printing press revolutionized completely. About 100 years later, the average cost of producing a book would have fallen to something more like 30 cents rather than 150,000 euros, which is an enormous difference in cost, right? Yeah. So there were more books around. You could also print books in minutes rather than, you know, dig into it for months. So books were widely distributed and they were suddenly available. And of course, first of all, people bought books because, oh, I can afford a book. So it's affordable to me. I can buy this luxury item. So they bought the books and just had them lying around. You know, because they couldn't read. They didn't expect that they could ever read. And then they started opening these books and looking into them and they figured out, this is not so hard. I can read. So they started reading. Now, what happens then, when you're like in the mid-1500s and forward in Europe, is that you get a lot of people who usually live in towns where they're closely connected with other people. And when people are trading and books start appearing everywhere, they get a lot of people to read books. What do these people do? They go home to their tiny little apartments in these towns in Europe, and they put on a little night lamp or something, and they sit there at night and they read the book. That's where the individual is created. This is the person Descartes writes to, because by the time Descartes writes in 1637, if you wrote a great book, you had a bestseller. You became famous. You became wealthy. You sold lots of books. So when Descartes writes a book and wants to become famous and have a bestseller, he writes a book that essentially says that you sitting there with that book in your hand, reading that book, can now determine your own destiny, regardless of what other people out there think of you. This is the birth of individualism. So Descartes writes to the people out there who, like him, are sitting at a book because reading a book is a solitary experience. Yes, it is. Then it's only a question of time before these people who read this book think that, well, if I can read a book, maybe I could write one. So you get a lot of people who start writing scripts around Europe and they start publishing these scripts. And actually, the number of books that are published in Europe just explodes. But the early 18th century, everybody's about to write a book in Europe. And then, of course, they discover that not all books are read because a lot of books are just crap. And then we get the book publishing industry that says that, okay, we're going to sort through all the scripts and not publish everything. But once we found a script that we like, we're going to put our brand, our publishing brand on that book and thereby recommend it. And then you get the organized book publishing industry. That leads to somebody discovering we could publish a book every day. That's a tabloid. It arrives in the 18th century or the 17th century in France. And by the 18th century, it's exploded in the streets of Paris when the French Revolution starts in 1789. Your tabloid's everywhere. What do you do with the tabloid? You buy a tabloid and you go home and read the newspaper. Again, you're alone in your reading experience. It's your relationship to the outside world. So again, individualism is encouraged through your actual use, through your interconnection with the world, because you are isolated in your consumption of media. Okay, so I can't get you this way, but let's talk about principles then. Because what you're talking about here, this is a practical example of what happens when you actually start acting like an individual. Yes. Yes. Then the ideology of individualism suddenly can take root. Yes, precisely. The thing, the thing with Abraham so is be, so that before, Abraham's bef- idea of the one God took root when tribes started moving and connecting with each other and realized we actually gain from not going to war with each other. Can we please bring the diplomats forward? 
Can we please arrange texts here, contracts in between us? So you have that territory and we have this territory. And suddenly you have peace settlements. And these peace settlements are reached at ritual places where you celebrate a common religion. Because you know that if two tribes share religion, they're much more aligned with each other than if they have separate religions. Which has been true ever since. Just look at Northern Ireland. In 2018, that damn place still cannot reach a peace settlement that's permanent because it's got two religions that, that, that are at each other's throats all the time. Two religions that... Two tribal religions without unification. They don't celebrate one god. They celebrate two different gods, a Catholic god and a Protestant god. That's What's exactly the difference what between unified. those two for us being born Jewish? Well, apparently there's a big difference because <laughs> you kill each other because of the difference. Yes. And is it all about not having confession or being able to buy yourself into heaven? Oh, it's got lots of stuff in there. It's essentially, Catholicism comes with saints and belief in the Pope as the ultimate authority and way more sacraments and, you know, painting your church in all kinds of colors. And it's not about direct access to God, you know, the way Protestantism is. Because Protestantism arrives after individualism has arrived. It is Christianity's response in Northern Europe to try to save its ass when the power of the printing press becomes obvious. So instead of trying to tack individualism, which is sort of a dead because route the, to go, you have to invent an individualistic Christianity. And that's what Protestantism is. Because pr the printing press, in a sense, demystified the, the written word. Because in Catholicism, no, they, well, the, the priests it, could it read... It demystified the handwritten word, but it did not demystify the printed word. Because the printed word then became... An obsession instead and became sacred. So you read the Bible in the church and everybody had their own Bible with them to read the Bible and suddenly had Bible studies. And you had to have, you could have your own opinion about the Bible and the Bible studies and you sort of accumulated different opinions and then agreed on a certain version of the Bible so you could keep the congregation together. So Christianity was forced to develop a form of individualism, especially for the parts of Europe where people were widely reading books and newspapers everywhere. It was to try to save Christianity. The Protestantism was invented. So it felt more modern. It felt more aligned. It felt like, okay, we have direct access to God. We're individuals responsible before God. The beauty of that, at least from a power perspective, was that you could hold everybody accountable as individuals. And this way individualism is so efficient and also so cruel. It is essentially a religion where a power structure in society says that you're all individuals, so you all have certain rights, You all have certain and duties, yes. and you have to fill those duties, and they include paying tax. Without individualism, you cannot have mass taxation of a society. Well, you, you could tax a collective. Well, I mean, a as a conquering king, you could go into a country and you could say, I don't know you personally, but I want your tribe to give me this much. Well, then the tribe is just going to fight about who pays what, and they're going to escape the taxation. It's way, way more efficient in rule of law and to run a government to hold each citizen because they each live in their own separate bodies accountable for what they do and who they are so you can tax them how much as you like. And by just keeping them separate from each other, they don't get unified. So whenever they try to rebel against taxation, the state will immediately go after them. This is how we created the high taxation state system. It's, it's a price we paid for individualism. Well, I'd say it's a pro well, I, I would say I'm willing to pay it because by now I'm an individual, I have no choice. But but um, what I was going to say is what you have after Abraham, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, is you have two types of tribes suddenly. You have the individualistic tribe and you have the collectivistic tribe. No, I don't think so. I think you're bringing individualism way too early in history. It's unfair. You cannot speak about individualism before the card of 1637. No, but maybe not in practice, but in principle you can. I don't, nobody did. Nobody talked about themselves as individuals. I don't see the trace of that in the Bible anywhere. 
I don't see anybody Abrahamic talking about themselves as individuals at all. But nothing? But no. you, you have individual responsibility before God? No, you don't really. You have a tribal responsibility before God because God punishes the tribe when they worship the wrong God and he, he benefits the tribe. He gives them rewards when they do the right thing. That's what Judaism is all about. It's incredibly tribal. God is mad with the tribe when the tribe goes wrong. God is happy with the tribe when the tribe does well. But in the story of Job, God becomes, well, he doesn't become mad with Job. He mostly just torments him. No, exactly. And Job is a character who has a relationship with God about his relationship with the tribe. What do you do when bad luck strikes? How do you deal with that? But ultimately, what Job learns in his process is that not about him. It's about the tribe. And God, and relationship between God and the tribe, between God and his people. That's what the Bible constantly turns. The Bible, if anything, knocks out the narcissist who is full of himself. He constantly gets punished throughout the tribe, I mean, throughout history. So, so God constantly punishes those who think they're separate from the tribe, forcing people back into the tribe to serve the tribe. And that's exactly what prophets leave the tribe and go out in the desert and go a bit mad. Because they have to walk into the tribe when the tribe is on the wrong path. And they sacrifice their own lives doing that. This prophet just blindly goes into the tribe and says, you're on the wrong path. You will die unless you start listening to God and do what's best for yourself. And you can throw rocks at me and kill me if you like. Fine. I don't mind. Because I will die for the tribe. Yes, I will. At least uh, to get a chance to tell them that they're all insane. I don't think individualism has Jewish roots at all. I think individualism happens in Europe in the 1600s because you have a whole new kind of people who live in cities and who read books and newspapers and they have different political opinions and they sort of have to have different political opinions. They have to create, you know, a sphere where opinions are being debated because the city cannot be withheld if it's run in a totalitarian manner. So you cannot have a totalitarian ideology. You certainly have to allow different opinions. So you have to go ironic about religion. You have to say that religion is just one post. You pick that. I pick this religion here. Which means you don't really take the religion seriously. You take something else seriously. And that dates back to uh, Darius con conquest of Babylon and the irony of religion in the 7th century before Christ. When, when the uh, Persians say that we will have an empire so we will tolerate different religions because otherwise the empire cannot be held together. Meaning that we will have a bigger overall story for the empire, which is the empire itself. That's what the empire represents. Meaning religions are then demoted to a second layer in metaphysics. They can be more private, they can be more tribal, but they're not imperial. Hmm. And it worked for a while, but it was an interesting idea. And it's the idea we stick to today. I mean, there's a reason why the scroll that he wrote in Babylon, 600 before Christ, is the one you find when you walk into the United Nations building. Because the United Nations building is essentially saying that we have lots of different ideologies, but we're being ironic about them. We're pretending they're all wrong. Mm -hmm. None of them is true. Because if one of them we claim to be true, it will all fall apart. So we, we claim it's all wrong. And then we're just saying we have one world, we have lots of different nations, and they somehow have to agree on not fighting each other. That's a really weak construct. It's a really weak construct. But at least it's an attempt to create something imperial for the world as a whole, where you can still tolerate different ethnicities, different religions and everything. But of course, it, it's, built, it's built on a sham. It's built on the idea that religion doesn't matter. 
And in a way, it's like when secular Westerners told Muslims that they have to be secular and they have to understand democracy and they have to respect the fact that Islam is just one of many religions within our society. Well, then you're actually telling the Muslim they can no longer believe in Islam. Yes. That's the honest truth. Yes, it is. So there's enormous hypocrisy involved in the idea of a democratic society where we share different opinions and different faiths and they're close to each other. Because that means nobody's taking their faith seriously. Well, It's just posing. It's a very effeminate idea what truth is. It's very inner circuit. It's like we have to live together. And because we have to live together, we're going to disregard truth. And we're just going to have sort of posing and positioning and hierarchy, meaning that you put on your garb and you go to your church and I put on my garb and I go to my mosque. And then we pretend that we believe in something. In reality, we don't believe in anything at all. Okay, so... Which is why it doesn't work. So let's say you have two tribes. Yeah. And one is uh, guided by individualistic principle and one is by collectivist principle. And by my de- definition, the individualist principle uh, allows you to not sacrifice yourself for the group. And the collectivist principle demands you sacrifice yourself for the, the, first for the group, greater group. The first group will never work. It will never work. You will have no allegiance to the tribe at all. You have no allegiance to the flag. You have no allegiance to the tribe. Because as soon as something scarily happens, you run off and you take care of yourself. That's not a tribe at all. This is a bunch of autists that are lost in the jungle. And the second group, where you are demanded to give your life for the collective? Well, you know, it doesn't. You see, this is why I'm a Hegelian. I don't buy the opposition of collective and individualist. No, I think that in any group there are tendencies for both. Uh, but I think it's you, a dialectical you, relationship. This is how it works. You're born, and you want to die, and you realize you have to live. It's called libido. Then you become fully yourself in that process, but you become fully yourself and being unified with the mother's body. So you believe that you and the mother's body are incredibly powerful. And because the mother's body provides about anything you ever want for some mysterious reasons, this seems to be incredibly powerful. Then comes the phallic intrusion of one year of age. That's the first scary reminder that you're not at all given everything you want because you can no longer get the milk from the tit, but rather it's a world out there when eventually one day you're going to have to do on your own. You have, to, you have to be autonomous and you have to be responsible for yourself. But you're also attracted to that. That's what the fallacy is supposed to do. It's supposed to seduce you towards adulthood. So childhood becomes this play and you're playing between the mamilla, your parents supporting you, and the phallus, which is the parents being grown-ups, which you're attracted to, which you one day possibly, hopefully will be. And then you come into your teenage years, and this is very important. What happens in your teenage years, you're going through the teenage rebellion, which is the rebellion against the phallus. So you take the values of your parents and the previous generation and throw them at your parents and discover their hypocrisy and discover the cracks in their value system. And you feel so full of yourself, you go into a new narcissistic mode. It's a second wave of narcissism. The first wave was, of course, after you got libido for the first time, you felt that you wanted to be alive. The second wave of narcissism starts here in the teenage years. Freud never really wrote about it, but that's actually what happens. Because Freud never wrote about what happens between the teenage rebellion and the rite of passage, the initiation. What then happens is that you're so full of yourself that you go completely narcissistic. But did they have uh, teenage rebellions in Freud's day? Well, they always existed. He might not be aware of it because it's actually a different shift from the initiation. And the what the initiation really is then about is the initiation is that the elderly essentially walk into your room and say, well, you're a goddamn brilliant 90-year-old, but you think you're fucking God and you're not. 
and they knock you down to size and they essentially tell you, you can feel you're really strong. You can feel you have muscles, you have energy, you have fertility. You know, you, you feel you're really, really strong. You're stronger than your dad. You're stronger than other men. But you know what? You have no knowledge. You have no wisdom. If we do let you walk out of this tribe on your own, you're going to die in seconds because of your naivety. And this is when the knowledge comes in. And then you learn to respect the elderly and learn to respect you could one day become one of them. This is the new journey. This is the adult journey. This is the journey from the initiation ceremony until the completion of your life and you can be an elderly. And that's a new journey you have to go through. So you're knocked down and then your narcissism is gone. And this is essentially what is lacking in individualism. Individualism is essentially saying that your narcissism does not require a rite of passage. You'll be fine without Why? it. How, how do you interpret individualism when you say that? I mean, Because the relationship between the elderly and the young fell apart. This is the tragedy of, 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 of Western society. The, the, the relationship between the elderly and their wisdom fell apart because when you were young and you could read and you could write and you had a book and you had 90 years old, you felt that that book provided you with the wisdom, meaning you were no longer dependent on another human being for your wisdom. So you felt that you were ready but someone wrote to the book. conquer the world. Hmm? But someone wrote the book, so there's another human behind those words. Yeah, but they're not inside your head. They're only in the book. Which is exactly why we get a society that eventually arrives at the worship of the teenager in America in the 1950s. We've gone further, further, further down the ages and moved into worship of youth. But that's tragic because young people know nothing about yeah. the world. And that's exactly, you know it, for example, in the business world, which is still one of the few, few functioning patriarchies that are out there, is that you cannot appoint somebody who's under 50 years of age to run a company. You cannot appoint somebody who's under 50 years of age because their ego will stand in the way. They will run it according to their ego. What you do with somebody's incredibly talented and, and like Mark Zuckerberg or somebody like that, but if somebody's incredibly talented and they do a good job and they were entrepreneurial and they create a successful company. And then you essentially, you create a survey among their staff when they're like 35 years old and they're shocked to see that they're hated. People are disgusted with them because you're only operating according to your own huge ego. You're not listening to people and you start making mistakes all the time. So you need to understand that the wisdom, the life wisdom, the life experience it takes to actually run something successfully is going to take a long time to gain because that's something you cannot have in a book. You have to have it inside your own head. And still today, the knowledge we have inside our own head, we have to learn and it takes forever to learn. Only when we get older can we hopefully learn it. And we also know by then we're vulnerable and we know that we need the support of others to make smart decisions. That's exactly what somebody who's over 50 years old also do not run things on their own. They create a collective, they create a board around themselves of other people with other talents that together are a great, great team. But that's, and they make the decisions. That's when you make good decisions. Yes, but that's my point because I seem to see individualism in a slightly different way. What I mean is when you have an, uh, a group that is guided by individualistic principles, that is when you, for the first time, can really understand what you can contribute to the group because then you, under, you see yourself as an individual. Then you can judge your strength and weaknesses. I, I, when I look at groups that I considered guided by more individualistic than collectivistic principles, I see a more open communication. When I look at collectivistic groups, I see well, man, I man, think, manipulation. I don't, I don't defend collectivism. I don't defend it at all. I think it can be stupid too. My system is way more dynamic. 
Your system. It, well, what I'm talking about, I, the ideal I'm talking about, like a functioning tribe or a functioning company. So if I work with a company and advise them on how they should run their leadership and how they should, you know, run information flows within the company the most efficient way possible and, and how they should get value out of their information flows. When I look at those things, I look at the human beings sitting in the room. They're the same human beings that existed 10,000 years ago. They're not collectivist. A collective, a collective, a collective like say North Korea will sooner or, or later go down the drain. So did Hitler's Germany. He was doomed from the very beginning because he's only listening to one guy who was full of himself. It was essentially a narcissistic dictatorship. Now that's not a collective that works. I don't, I don't talk about the collective. I talk about the tribe all the time. And because socialism has also been so damnated, I don't call myself a socialist. I call myself a tribalist. Yeah. I do tribal anthropology. And I think I have better answers for people how they should relate to each other that are more human than any other idea do. The problem with anything you call an individualistic group is that it will soon fall apart. The one thing that always strikes me with you is, because you return to that saying all the time, is it's not about you. And you seem to have actually realized that in your life, which I envy. Well, it's boring if it would be about you. It's just boring. Of course, there's a journey you go through that phase when you think you're dead important. I was as narcissistic as anybody else's in the late teens, okay? But even then I realized that if I was going to be a star on a theater stage, and theater was my first big obsession, I had to collaborate with everybody else. And I had to prove that I was the most talented actor to have the leading role. But still, everybody else had to act on top of their capacity if it was going to be a good play, or otherwise the reviews would be awful. You cannot operate on your own like that. You completely depend on other people. What I did do when I went into the music industry was that I always played in bands. And I always worked in production teams. I never made a solo record. And I think that speaks volumes about where I saw the limitations to individualism and the boredom of it. And I met so many narcissists that were sort of going through this hell of being narcissistic, this sort of lack of understanding of the dynamics around you, this compensation behavior that narcissism is. Narcissism is a lack of self-love. Yeah, It's I, compensating I, for no. the fact you can't love and accept yourself. So you're demanding that other people should see you all the time. It's incredibly tiresome. No, I agree with that. Boring. And I agree that there are downsides to individualism as well. Yeah. But, but what I say is what's good about individualism is that it uh, asserts your value as a person towards the collective. The collective cannot discard you in any way it can. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, human rights come from the idea of individualism. You can't have human rights without individualism. Well, you can, but, but to make the rule of law as simple as possible, you look at physical entities, and tribes have added members, and they also lose members constantly. People do move around. Yeah. That's exactly, we can't have also a system only of communes that run themselves, for example, because the territories are too small. People move in and out constantly. So you can't have one commune deciding, the next commune deciding, the next commune deciding. But what you do then is you, dict you, you create a system of rule of law where each body stands before the court, meaning you can hold each body responsible for what they do. You can force each body to pay tax. Yes. And contribute to society. Yeah, which yeah. can be good Which or is bad. very convenient yes, more than anything. So you create the individualism uh, of the law, the individualism is that you are an individual, so you're in, you are the unit on which we base everything else. I prefer to use the, the, the term individual. Yeah, I know. Because you can still make constructions, like you and I can, for example, start a company together. So we can make an arrangement where we're mutually dependent on each other, meaning that if you do something wrong, I go to jail too. 
because we then create a stronger trust towards others because, okay, these guys back up each other. Good. Then they give more trust and then they be on their own. That's called a corporation. Yeah. Okay. So we can play around, but what we're doing then, we're not looking at ourselves as individuals. We're looking at the individual as the smallest brick in a system of bricks where any combination of bricks can work. And that is essentially what modern society is. So we already have that in place and can play around with that today when we look at society today. That's why we're still doing Facebook accounts. Like so you, you have your Facebook account, I have mine. But eventually in the future, we're going to have Facebook accounts that really aren't located to one specific body any longer. They can be located to a series of bodies and nobody at all. And you can also be many people in one. You can be many individuals in one body. I don't like this, I think. <laughs> That's, it's, a, it's a lot about you, but there's a lot of people who like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. In, in psychoanalysis, it's incredibly valuable to work with a method called schizoanalysis, which is used very often. It's when people are, go neurotic because they, they're obsessed about several different things in their life and they really become you know, incompetent. They can't really make decisions and get anything done because they have several neurons at the same time. What's really valuable to do is to, to make them draw a circle and say, this is your I, this is your ego, put your name in it, but you're not allowed to give it any form of substance whatsoever. That means all your personal traits are other personalities. Then you start building these other personalities, you give them names, they can have different genders, they can even be different species, whatever. So you can build these different characters that live inside this house that is your body. And these different characters get names and they have different characteristics. You know, one of them is a grumpy old man, and here's the little kid who likes to play around, and here's the old woman who is like really a real bitch, whatever. So you have all these different characters inside, you give them names, and people find it incredibly fruitful to do that. Because they, they get a, a fuller a, uh, idea of who they are that way by looking at themselves as several different people in the same body. And then the eye is only the thing that connects these different personalities, meaning that when these different personalities have constantly ongoing board meetings in your head and have to make decisions of what you're going to do, they make majority decisions, and that majority decisions is your eye. Yes, and I'm perfectly fine with a collectivist who has that view of himself or herself or itself. Uh, but I still demand when they stand in a court of law accused of a crime uh, that they take full board membership responsibility for their actions. I don't think they have to, but we have to hold them responsible so we can lock them up if they cause us trouble. Yes, that is... Uh, I, see, I see the rule of law as something incredibly pragmatic, but I think it's very, very dangerous to bring individualism into the courtroom because then you go to modern neuroscience and you discover that actually the experience of the eye happens way later than we think. The body's already decided what it wants to do, which even more proves that it's actually the body that decides and not our eye. Our eye is an afterthought. Our eye is essentially just a series of nodes of decisions made where we make the decisions on what we feel is imperfect information. It's exactly when you have to make a decision, you cannot gain any more knowledge because you have to make that decision now. But that's, when you, that's when you sympathize with that decision, you identify with it, and the sense of an eye is created. And these senses of eyes throughout your life, these nodes that you create, these knots, are then connected along a timeline. And that is the experience of who you are. Meaning one experience can change your entire perception of who you've always been. That is true. Yes. And I so the eye is not solid at all. It's not a soul inside about it at all. It's an afterthought that the brain constructs for your world to make sense. But in relation to a chaotic world, you have to create something calm somewhere that is stable. And this, this 
point of stability is actually an innovation the brain does. So you don't believe that free will is anything else but a concept, basically? I don't see what freedom and will have to do with each other to begin with. I think the combination of free will was constructed by Christianity or some kind of monotheistic religion to force us to be responsible for our actions. It was created by a power that wanted to control us. I don't see anything positive in the idea of free will at all. I think my body does what it wants. But, but personal responsibility, there must be some personal responsibility. Your body does what it wants, but sometimes you can uh, uh, cross your body, right? I mean, you can go against your, uh, your bodily functions. You can say, I want to pee now, but I can wait half an hour because I have uh, strength of will. No, I have a model that's much better by providing the tribe as the fundamental model for human existence and not the individual. It is the elderly that tells you to shut the fuck up and get your act together and go to the toilet and pee. Otherwise, you're pretty useless and you get smacked. Okay, I can see you're angry now, so I no, will go to the toilet and pee. because you force the tribe to stay in this location when we should really be on the move because you're sitting here peeing in your pants. You should be out working. Again, I think the elderly provide a perfect, pragmatic, ethical system that your loyalty to the tribe, your own survival is dependent on your loyalty to the tribe. So there's are certain things you need to do to the community in different ways you need to contribute. Meaning the community essentially says, contribute to the community and then you have freedom to do whatever you want. Meaning your body can do whatever it wants. But it's not a will that's free. The will wills what it wills. And it's not free in that sense. It just wills what it wills. If you're honest and ask yourself what your desire is, you cannot control it. This is, for example, why it's heartbreaking to break up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend when you realize you don't love them anymore. But you have to, because you're actually a slave to your desire. If your desire says that I don't love you any longer, you actually literally have to go through the ethical process of admitting that and breaking up with that person. And it tears you apart. Where's free will in that? Will doesn't make you free at all. Will is merciless. Desire is merciless. Your sex drive is merciless. It controls you. And what Jacques Lacan says is that we should not fight it. We have to acknowledge the fact we are slaves to our own desires and, 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 and our drive. And the only thing we can then do is to then put that into social context and realize when our drives and desires crash into the interest of, tri of the tribe around us. We have to be wary of some of that. But at the, end of, at the end of the day, we should stay true to our desire and drive as much as we possibly can. And that's not what you will. But what if your desires are bad? Let's say they have bad outcomes for others. You're well, a pedophile. Well, where do you think that starts? It doesn't start out of nothing, right? No, no, it doesn't start out of nothing, but the outcome will still be bad, and you have to sort of control that desire well, so that you don't act upon study it. Study pedophilia closer. Try to understand what it is. There are explanations if you study the topic closer. Yeah, but explanations... Why would a grown-up man, say, be, or a grown-up woman, for that matter, be attracted to the boy of, or a girl six or seven years old that's not sexually developed yet? Because you're afraid of being attracted to the sexually developed. So you have a trauma. The trauma stands in the way for being attracted to the sexually developed. Or you have been attracted to the sexually developed bodies and you were disappointed because they didn't want you. And that might be true, but yes. it still doesn't matter. Understand the pathology rather than jump at the moralistic uh, judgment, because that's the, that's the easy way that I don't buy it. No, all. but that's not my point. Here. I want to understand the pathology and go into the pathology, because the explanation will also provide you with the answer on how you're going to act. Yeah, yeah, but that's not my point. My point is simply this. Uh, you can acknowledge that you have these desires, yeah. right? But you still don't have to act upon them. 
Yes. Right? Yeah, for uh, your own good. So there's a modicum of free will in relation to your physical desires. I wouldn't, I wouldn't connect freedom and will here at all. I wouldn't say there's free will. You have a choice. Okay, so let's okay. call it a choice, though. Yeah, because your, but, will, but, but, your, will, your will will still be to fuck that child or something until you've cured that, until the pathology has been cured. It will still be there. The law does not allow you to act on that will. That doesn't mean you have a free will to abstain or act on it because the will will be the same. The will itself is not free. The choice exists to act on the choice or not. And you should then identify with the choice. What did you do? So the reward you get by choosing wisely is that you can identify with that choice. That means you're more reliable. That means you can contribute better to the tribe. So you've grown. So, so you go back to the idea that you can be more adult and you should encourage yourself to be more adult and value yourself higher ethically speaking by being able to contain a certain will and make a certain choice that benefits both you and the tribe. But the tribe might also, because it's confused, might tell you it wants you to do this and this and this. And reality is this is not in the interest of the tribe, which is what Abraham saw. Then you have to act against what the tribe tells you. That's when you really are in the mode of speaking the truth. Yeah. So what do you think Abraham saw in the polytheistic society he grew up in that he disliked so much? He saw it wasn't sustainable. He saw these guys will soon go to war with each other. This ritual place is nothing. They don't even believe in the gods they put in there. This is just theatrical. This will fall apart. We have to create a religion we actually can believe in. And that religion has to be phallic. And has to believe that there's a future. And that sooner or later God will arrive and save us. And will create peace in between us and prosperity. It is the belief that the capacity of three tribes united is bigger than one tribe on its own. I mean, so it's the first trace of what I call intertribalism in history. Abraham and Zoroaster are the birth of intertribalism. The birth of monotheistic religion is the birth of the idea that tribes can or can be forced or whatever or convinced to collaborate, even if we're born to hate each other. It's a very noble idea, but incredibly, incredibly hard until this day to achieve. Intertribalism is the easy part. Love and respect the people within your own tribe. That's easy. We're born to do it. Intertribalism. To learn and respect and communicate with people of a different tribe than yours is fiendishly hard. And it requires a shared metaphysics. We cannot live in a multicultural world with different religions without a shared metaphysics. Because you sooner or later have to share a metaphysics that is superior to the other religions. And that's exactly when secular people are attacking Islam, they're doing it the wrong way. You actually have to admit that Islam does no longer work in a multicultural society. We shouldn't be multicultural. Uh, it should go towards a new uniculture on a higher level. And that new uniculture on a higher level has to today, has to be network dynamical. That's why I'm doing theology and metaphysics in my work. We have to develop a network dynamical faith that we all share. I call this idea the global empire. That was the title of my second book with John Sedegist. So... The metaphysical theological here is that we have to create a new story and that story cannot be ironic. It has to be believable. That's the difficulty. We have to create a new grand narrative that we actually do believe in. It must not be ironic. Therefore, I do not believe in a sort of Jordan Peterson in return to Christianity because we do not believe in Christianity anymore. We gave up on it because it turned out that it was wrong. It wasn't correct. So Jesus we never was resurrected on the third. It never happened. All the very prerequisites for Christianity no longer exist. 
We never return to previous paradigms metaphysics because then we go ironic and then we really, really have problems. It has never happened that we return to a previous metaphysics? Never successfully ever because the paradigm itself changes our relationship between each other and that's due to technology. And the technological change today is we live in an interactive world with a messy new chaotic phenomenon called the internet, which is swallowing the world and swallowing all previous media and taking over absolutely everything. And we're creating data flows and information flows with digits everywhere. And we're now going to move towards a sensocracy, which is a society when sensors measure and control absolutely everything we do. And we need to have a metaphysical system that somehow regulates this sensocracy. And I called it network dynamics. And I call it synthesis in the sense that it's a god we need to create. Yeah, I have read your book on synthesis. You know, I'm a, I used to be a discordian by choice, um, so uh, I was very much into parody religion when I was younger. But yours yeah. is serious. It's dead serious. You're I mean, not there, ironic there at all. Diff- there are four different concepts from the history of metaphysics: this atheos, the non-existent god, is a god in itself, the primordial void. That's what it's called in, with Hegel. Then we have pantheos, which is the universe as it exists as one unity, one universe. And that certainly is a kind of a god. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I be God, I wouldn't create something separate from me. I would create myself. Well, that's a much more logical God than any idea of God being separate from the world. Like, you know, God would at least be the universe itself, if anything. And it's an expansive phenomenon. It's grown over 14 billion years. It's a pretty massive God. It doesn't care much about us, but it's a pretty massive God. The third concept is entheos, and that is the question of why is there so much of everything within this universe? Why is there so much diversity and so much multiplicity? Well, that also colors on ourselves. And this is also why the entheos is connected to a better idea of what it means to be a individual rather than an individual. I believe the entheos as God is also a God from within which is also why I connect this God to psychedelic experiences and other ecstatic experiences. I connect this God to sexuality. I connect the entheos as a God also to the timeline because timeline is the God of change and the ultimate God to me, Zurvan, God itself. So that's entheos. So you have three different concepts you undeniably can believe in. Even the most ardent, stubborn atheist today can believe in these gods. And I add a fourth one. Okay. If God is the name of all our dreams combined, and God does not exist, why don't we create God? And then you have the God of artificial intelligence. And that's where, where artificial intelligence ultimately end up? Well, it's not limited to bodies the way humanity is, which humanity is split into seven billion bodies. No, artificial intelligence will eventually move towards becoming one huge phenomenon, an incredibly intelligent, incredibly intelligent phenomenon itself. And what is that if not God? So you already have these crazy heads in Silicon Valley trying to build God now. And that only happened after we wrote the book. That book came out in 2013. And after that, you're going to remember that in 2013, a couple of guys in Sweden wrote this book that we could create God. And suddenly that idea became commonplace. Thank you for listening to The Aryan Jew Show. You have been listening to Alexander Bard. And you can follow him on Twitter under his nom de guerre, Bardissimo. Or on Facebook. Apart from an earlier life as a pop star and TV personality, he is an author and a philosopher in his own right focusing on the melding of man and technology. Together with Jan Söderqvist, he has written several books, ranging from The Netocrats in 2000 to Synthism in 2014, where they found a new religion for the age of information technology. Me, I'm not particularly religious, but you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and in five days or so, Facebook. But mostly on www.aaronflam.com and in my podcast, Deconstructive Critique. 
The links to Alexander's social media, books and this podcast can also be found on aaronflam.com until Arian Yu Show gets its own webpage, which is underway. Thank you and until next time, have a good unit of time and may randomness strike an advantageous outcome for you. Thank you.